We turn this evening to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, in our study of God's law, we're up to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You shall not murder, and Romans 12 is a calling to love both within the church and also in the world, to love even our enemies and to repay no one evil for evil. So Romans 12 in the Bible, and then we'll turn to the Heidelberg Catechism to look at that summary of the Sixth Commandment. Romans 12 at verse 1. After all these chapters about God's glorious and sovereign grace, His mercies to us, then Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but... All the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God's word. If you turn in the Smaller Forms and Prayers book in the chair in front of you to page 247, you'll be in the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're visiting with us tonight, the Heidelberg Catechism, if you're not familiar with it, is just a question-and-answer format of teaching and summarizing the main teachings of the Bible 
And at this point, it's proceeding through an explanation of each of the Ten Commandments. And it asks on page 247 in question 105, what is God's will for you in the Sixth Commandment? Commandment that says you shall not murder. And we'll see it has both a negative side and a positive side. What is God's will for you in the Sixth Commandment? Answer, I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? Question 106 asks. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. And then if you turn the page, question 107 says, it is, enough, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? And the answer is no, it's not enough. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Let's bow before the Lord and ask him to bless his word to us tonight. Oh Lord, we praise you for your holy law. We thank you for your commandments because they are wise, they are true, they are right. We pray, Father, you'd convict us of our sin and that you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Through your word tonight, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A book on the Ten Commandments written by a URC pastor, Dr. Michael Horton, has a chapter on the Sixth Commandment with the title, How Pro-Life Are We Really? How Pro-Life Are We Really? And that's an interesting and intriguing title, isn't it? Because it's easy to be pro-life in the sense of being against abortion. But it's much more difficult to be pro-life when it comes to the driver in front of us, isn't it? How pro-life are we really? The pro-life that we're called to be is quite countercultural. Romans 12 says we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's to be a, a metamorphosis, a transformation, like the caterpillar to butterfly, a, a great change in us through Jesus Christ. By nature, we are pro-death. That's what our culture is. Our culture loves death. Abortion is just, is just one obvious, evident way in which our culture loves death, but they are, they are devoted to paths of destruction. They delight in it. And we, through Jesus Christ, by these great mercies that God has shown to us, have been not only set free from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin to be made new creatures now who are being transformed and are called to pursue that transformation that we may present ourselves to God a living sacrifice. We are not to, to take the lives of others, but we are to give our lives in sacrifice. 
towards those in the church, loving our brothers and sisters, and even towards those in the world, loving even our enemies. And so we're called away tonight from the standards of the world. The world has its own standard about what, about what caring for someone's life is, but, but we're not subject to the world's standards. We're called to be transformed and to find out what's good and acceptable and perfect according to God's will. We sit before the Lord tonight, and we're called to be transformed. Our Lord Jesus calls us to the cross tonight, where we're transformed from a life of anger and revenge to a life of self-giving love. Let's look at this tonight. Let's look, first of all, at the revenge that God condemns, the revenge that God condemns, and then consider the right, the right to life that God claims. And then, thirdly, we'll look at the response. If we're not supposed to be angry and destroy our neighbor in revenge, what, what kind of response are we to have to our neighbor, the response that God commands? So, first of all, the revenge that God condemns, then the right that God claims, and then the response that God commands. Well, what's forbidden in the, the Sixth Commandment? When it says you shall not kill, it means you shall not unlawfully kill. You shall not murder. What, what is forbidden there? Well, what's not forbidden is capital punishment. What's not forbidden is just war or righteous self-defense. But there are a host of things that are forbidden by this commandment. The Dutch theologian Herman Bovink died about 100 years ago has a book on ethics in which he puts it like this, the sixth commandment forbids murder in the literal sense of the word, that is killing someone's body, including one's own, with external physical means. One can personally kill another by striking, punching, poisoning, drowning them and the like, or one can have someone else do it, as David did in the case of Uriah or as the Jews did in the case of Christ. One can do it more directly or more indirectly by striking someone who dies from a wound a week or a month or a year later, by compromising someone's bodily health, by having children, women, or men work beyond their strength, think of factories, by withholding their wages, by seducing friends to live an immoral and intemperate life that undermines their health, by damaging someone's reputation, or by breaking someone's heart, for example, of one's father or mother through grief. What a variety of ways in which one could destroy the life of one's neighbor. But it's not just that. As we see in the catechism, God actually hates even the root of murder, which is what? Which is anger, envy, hatred, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Let's think about that vengefulness, that revenge that comes up a lot here in Romans chapter 12. The apostle says it at least three times over. We read in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Now why would the Lord have to say that three times in a row to his people? If it wasn't that, we're prone by nature to do that, to pay back to others as they've done to us. The person who cuts us off on the road, maybe we want to do it back to them. When somebody at work has lied about us, then maybe we want to return the favor. Children run to their mom and say, but, but he hit me first. I'm just doing back to him as if that justifies it. Maybe we give a cold shoulder to someone in our household who gave us a cold shoulder. 
Maybe our boss was rude to us, so now we're passive-aggressively going to ruin his day by making sure his plans don't work out. Now, scientists, I read, are studying why revenge tastes so good, and through brain scans are developing ideas about why revenge is so satisfying, but, but without such studies, we're miles ahead tonight because we already know the answer. Anger, hatred, and revenge gratify the depraved nature. Galatians 5 tells us that the works of the flesh, the sinful nature, are evident, including hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, envy, murder. You don't need a great scientific study to figure out. We're a sinful, depraved people. That's why we find these things satisfying. But it is worldly wisdom to to settle our own accounts, to say, he did to me, so I'm going to do to him. God calls us tonight to be countercultural. You shall not murder. You shall not take revenge. You shall not pay back. He cut me down with his word, so I'm going to return to him. No, God says, you may not do that. That's not the way to which I have called you. To the sinful mind, it seems so appropriate to pay back. Just read in our next door app this afternoon about somebody boasting about how they slashed the tires of somebody who was stealing mail out of their mailbox. They got lots of applause from the Salem neighborhood. Way to go. Well, was that justice? Do not repay evil for evil. And yet, we do that unless we've experienced mind renewal. Who can set us free, right? Who can set us free of this but the Lord Jesus Christ? Otherwise, we operate by worldly wisdom. We pat ourselves on the back as we continue to operate by the moral code of the world. We're opposed to murder. We're opposed to the baggage. We're opposed to thieves. But then we nurse grudges, and we harbor anger, and we fantasize about revenge. And all of that's very enslaving. But, but the Lord says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of slavery. He did that physically, of course, by bringing them out of Egypt. But, but the deeper liberation we needed came only through the death of God's Son, our Lord Jesus. And how did he die? But by the hatred and envy of his enemies. He was murdered. And there we see ourselves. In that spite and envy of the Jewish leaders, in that brutality of the Roman guards, we... We see ourselves, we sang about that this morning, right? The merciless cries of the Jewish people. We are a murderous people. Now, you know, it's interesting that anger, you know, that's often thought of as a rather respectable sin. It's not one of those scandalous sins. We all get angry and we laugh about that. But in God's sight, it's horrible. Doesn't seem like a big deal, maybe. Get angry at the person that checkout stand, we... We get short with the customer service person on the phone. We snap at somebody at work. We cherish thoughts of revenge. We laugh about ways we get back. And yet the Lord says it's wicked. Gene Viss writes, Out of the slimy depths of man's inhumanity to man, we have come face to face with these monsters of hate and revenge, pride and envy. It is not pleasant 
It is not a pleasant task to drag them from their dark caverns to view them in the light of the revealed word of God, but only thus can we learn about man's brutal power to take life. That's what it is. Anger is not a laughable thing. It's not a respectable thing. It's not an okay thing. All of our anger arises from the same heart that murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. But the good news tonight is that Christ bore that penalty. And he suffered that anger, didn't he? He suffered for our brutality, for the monsters of our revenge and cruelty to set us free, not only from the guilt of sin, but from its power that we may follow him. 1 Peter 2 says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The law of personal, vindictive payback, retaliation has been broken. I'm not a slave to that anymore. I don't have to operate by that worldly code. I've been set free now to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, not to walk in the ways of the world, but to walk in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. When somebody does me wrong, to entrust it to the Lord who judges justly. What a glorious thing. In all the places where the worldly thinking finds a safe haven in our hearts and minds, we have to fall on our knees before the cross and repent and say, Lord, forgive me and cleanse me and purge me that I may walk after the pattern of Christ. I may not murder. I may not take revenge. Well, what's the reason for that? Why is revenge wrong? Let's look secondly tonight at the right that God claims, the right of life. Not just the revenge God condemns, but secondly tonight, the right that God claims. Human life is not of itself strong. The Bible describes human life as a vapor. It's a mist. It's a flower that flourishes and then is cut down. But... Human life has a value that God has given it. And God is the sovereign author of life. He's its eternal judge. God has the power to give life and to take away life. God says about revenge, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance and payback are God's prerogative, not ours. The Lord has appointed human judges, of course, but even they have limits, and they don't own life. God does. God's the creator of life. He's the maker. He's the owner of life. It all belongs to him. God has a right to punish. God has a right to take life. God's wrath, Romans 1 says, is already now being revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. People may accuse the God of the Bible of doing something wicked when they read of of how he puts people to death in the Bible, but... But God is the just judge, and he is the owner of life, and God will settle all accounts perfectly. We may entrust our cause to the one who judges justly. 
Now, human life is so valuable because it's made in the very image of God and therefore invested with a dignity and honor that is unique. Those who say human life is, is not special. Maybe the planet would be better without humans, of course, have, have failed to read the opening book of the Bible. And those who think that human life is just the product of chance, it's just the assembly of matter, of course, then they have no basis for morality at all, right? What basis is there for morality if, if this is an accident? Somebody might say, well, all of life is, is precious. Don't squish a bug. Others might say, well, we, you know, we used to be cavemen killing each other, but then we got together and formed a social contract and say it would you know, work out better for both of us if we didn't kill one another. Well, that holds up for a while until somebody decides, actually, it would work out better for me if I did kill you. You see, there's no basis for morality in this world. All, all the claims of evolutionists that there's a, a moral code is absolutely foundless. It has, it has no foundation at all. But we know as God's people that the value of human life is determined by God and God has assigned it a dignity because man is made in his image and it's, it's stamped by the Lord as an artist signs his painting. It bears the mark of its maker, the Lord God. And so human beings, they have a, a royal priestly character. They're made in the image of, of the glorious God in his likeness. James warns about the untamed tongue full of deadly poison he says with it we bless our lord and father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of god who are we to curse god's image bearers who are we to assault god's likeness who are we to destroy the image bearers that god has made and yet we do we belittle them and we shred them with our words and we say cutting remarks we attack if not with a, a literal knife to slice them up with our looks, with our words, with our gestures. What careless words we speak sometimes in our marriages, in our homes. What cruelties among children and young people. Many people have tales, don't they, from their childhood that a single remark, right, cut them to the heart, changed their life. I still remember somebody getting cut down so bad in school and, and feeling still so bad, thinking I should have stood up for him. But I wondered as I went on looking at this when it happened in, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade and then going through the rest of school years all the way through high school with both the perpetrator and the victim and seeing how the victim moved more and more to the fringes of social life, just wondering what, what those words, that slaughter did to him psychologically. Tongue is a cruel weapon, isn't it? God, with the sixth commandment, puts a fence around human life. And he says, this life belongs to me. It is not yours to destroy. It's not yours to take. It's not yours to cut apart. This life is mine, God says. And it doesn't matter if it's an unbeliever. James is suggesting, I think, that all people are made in God's likeness. Though only the believers being restored to the image, even the unbelievers still bears the likeness of God as an image bearer. Marred and scarred and broken as he is and as an image bearer. That's why no matter how many babies are aborted in our land, it's, it never becomes something that we make peace with. 
The Lord God, the maker of these lives, is assaulted. The Lord of life is being robbed. Image bearers are being massacred. So we continue to pray and to work. And in the Western world, the euthanasia, right? Life gets too old, right? It costs too much to just wipe out the older ones. Who? Who are you, wise doctor, to cut off someone's life? And even suicide, as it's on the rise, people think they have the master of their own life. I'm not hurting anyone else. I, can, I have rights over my own life. Well, no, you don't. The life you have is not your own. It's created. It was made. It belongs to another. And even as we deal with our politicians who justify and legislate so many of the horrible crimes the Bible speaks about, and we are rightly, hopefully, righteously angry at times, even as we deal with our political leaders, we must remember they are image bearers. They are God's image bearers, and we may not destroy their life. See, the commandment here is strong. God lays claim to lives. He's against reckless living. We destroy our bodies or starve our souls or squander our existence. He's against reckless driving or we act like nobody else's life matters. Where I want to go and be right now is what matters most. No, God says. Herman Bovink again, he writes, We are murderers also when we kill our neighbor's soul. Think about that. We are murderers also when we kill our neighbor's soul. Satan was such a murderer from the beginning, wasn't he? He was a soul murderer. We kill a soul when we seduce someone, causing them to fall into sin through our word or example. This happens when we flatter our neighbor's pride, incite their evil lusts and desires, feed their anger, encourage their lust for revenge, weaken their tender consciences, Shock their faith by doubt, crush their faith by our ridicule, or offend them in anything whatsoever. We can do this even to our children if we ignore the bad books they read or any irreverent talk about God, His Word, His church, or sermons. If we stoke their pride, appeal to their ambition, and the like. And also, all of us are murderers. It was our sins that caused Jesus' death, Bovink writes. Life belongs to the Lord. We may not destroy one's body. We may not destroy their soul. And where we have disregarded God's claim to life, then we're called to repentance. We are all murderers. We are all murderers. We've harmed God's lives. We've harmed God's image bearers. We've done evil through our cruelties, through our carelessness, through our selfishness, through our anger, through our call to the cross of Jesus, the one who was murdered and the one who gave his life so that we could live. It's only in Jesus Christ that these sins are paid for. We cannot atone for the blood on our hands. We cannot atone for the blood on our lips. Only the Lord Jesus in his death did that. But as we come to God in repentance and we say, Lord, I, I'm sorry for the lives I have ruined. I'm sorry for the people I've hurt. 
sorry for my careless disregard for the lives you've made. Forgive me through Jesus Christ and transform me. How shall I live now, Lord? Well, then notice finally tonight the response that God commands, the response. Do not murder has both a negative side, but like all the commandments, also has a positive side. Have we done enough, the Catechism says, when we just don't kill anybody? Well, no, we're called positively to bless them, to help them, to love them, to do them good. That's what love is, to seek their best. And we're to seek and love our neighbor, to seek their best both in body and soul. To patience and peace and gentleness and compassion and kindness. The first ones that that Romans 12 talks about showing love to are our, our own family, right? The church family. We are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Well, of course, you don't, you don't cut your own arm off, so don't hurt your brother or sister. But instead, minister to one another. Again, the, the sacrifice we're called tonight is not, to, is not to kill somebody else in our place, but the sacrifice we're called to do is a living sacrifice in which we give ourselves, we lay down our lives for others. So the apostle says, whatever gifts you've been given by the grace of God, use them. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Give yourself away in the church. That's the fulfillment of the sixth commandment. And again, our Lord Jesus taught us that, didn't he? What glorious love that he gave his life for us. But we're to love not just those who love us. Even the tax collectors do that, we read. We're to love even our enemies, right? Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And the way to bless our enemy is by giving them the very thing they need. If it's food, give them food. If it's help, give them help. Jesus said in this way, you'll be like your Father in heaven, right? He sends rain and sunshine upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Called to love our enemies, to pray for them, to seek to bless their lives. Sounds nice. It's not easy in the concrete reality, is it? The next-door neighbor that's been nothing but trouble. The next-door neighbor that has, whose yard is an eyesore. Whose loud car wakes you up every morning. It's not so easy, maybe, to go over and help them. To sympathize with a co-worker who's only poured salt in your wounds. It's not so easy. To seek the good of the boss, even though he's made your life miserable. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you, Jesus says in Luke 6. He actually says, by doing this, you'll heap burning coals, coals of fire on on their head. I think the sense is that, that they might be brought to be ashamed of their behavior. That would be the goal, right? That in seeing your love and your mercy, they might be ashamed of their wicked ways and might ask you, why are you doing this? What is this? And they might have an opportunity to say, because this is the way of my Father. He sends you 
rain and sunshine. He gives you food every day. I'm supposed to be like him. Let me tell you about my father. By well-doing, we might be instruments of quenching the animosity and hatred of others. We might show them the way of Christ's kingdom. We might point them to a different land where the rule is not pay back what someone has done to you, but the rule is die to yourself and give your life away. You see, you haven't fulfilled the sixth commandment. You have a do-nothing response. You know, I, I didn't run them over. That was very, very wonderful of me. I'm such a good person. No, but, but the car that you didn't cut off after it cut you off, did you actually pull over when they got a flat tire? See, did you love them? Did you do them good? Jesus Christ was being attacked, arrested by his enemies. Remember, and he stooped down to heal that ear that was cut off in the garden. Christ's love to the end. That's our Savior. That's our example. That's our power. That's our life. That's, that's the way of this kingdom in which Jesus Christ has brought us. Brothers and sisters, we, we measure ourselves too often by the world's standard. And if we've done a little better than the world, we think we're so loving. And Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into the mold of this world. But be utterly transformed by the renewing of your mind. You belong to a different world. You belong to a different kingdom. You belong to a different king. You are of a different kind. And you're not subject then to the moral code of this world. But you are called to march according to the command of your captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because through union with him, by believing on him, you've been set free of your guilt. You've been set free from that enslavement to revenge. You've been set free to love. To love. I wonder if the world recognizes us, but there's something altogether different about us. Sometimes we forget in our zeal for righteousness, in our opposing all things wicked and all wrong political ideas, we've forgotten what is most basic. We are to be known as a people of love. Love. Love, even your enemies. This is the word of God for us. May we confess where we failed. And may we pray for grace to be transformed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, for the truth, the beauty, and the wonderful ways of your holy law. Well, Father, we acknowledge we far, fall very far short Confess, Lord, that we are by nature murderers. And we have thought wicked things, done wicked things, and we have said wicked things. We've excused our anger with laughter. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your standard would be clear in our minds, both to show our sin, but also to call us to a different way. And we pray that your spirit would transform us, that we could see the beauty and the goodness of your way. Help us, O Lord, to refuse to be conformed to this world and to choose the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for such a Savior. May love be perfected among us through him. Amen.